Now before the festival of the Passover, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The devil had already put it into the heart of Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray him. And during supper, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going to God, got up from the table, took off his outer robe, and tied a towel around himself. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was tied around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus answered, You do not know now what I am doing, but later you will understand. Peter said to him, You will never wash my feet. Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, One who has bathed does not need to wash except for the feet, but is entirely clean, and you are clean, though not all of you. For he knew who was to betray him. For this reason he said, Not all of you are clean. After he had washed their feet, had put on his robe, and had returned to the table, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for that is what I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have set you, at, for I have set you an example that you also should do as I have done to you. Very truly, I tell you, servants are not greater than their master, nor are messengers greater than the one who sent them. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. This is the word of the Lord. David Wolpe tells a wonderful story in his book, Teaching Your Children About God, that I want to start our sermon with tonight. It's a marvelous story of a man who once stood before God, his heart breaking from the pain and the injustice in the world. Dear God, he said, look at all the suffering, the anguish, and the distress in your world. Why don't you send help? And God responded, I did send help. I sent you. Well, in that story is a lot of wisdom that some of us understand and others of us hope that somebody else will do the work instead. As people of faith, we are given eyes to see and ears to hear that are different from everybody else. We are open to suffering tonight as we remember together what Jesus is about to do what Jesus is about to endure. As people of faith, our eyes and ears are more able to focus on suffering and anguish and distress in the world, and we 
must respond. We have answers to world problems that politicians and diplomats and military advisors don't always use. We respond with a blanket and food and shelter and education. We can patch up wounds. We respond when others are talking. And we are much closer to who Jesus was and who Jesus is today than any other action that we take. Well, let's take a look at our scripture for tonight. That unique story that only appears in one place in the New Testament, the Gospel of John. No other Gospel writer has this story in its writings about Jesus. Indeed, John was the last Gospel written in the late 1st or early 2nd century. Indeed, there are many issues with the Gospel of John when placed up against the three Gospels, which are known as the Synoptics. As my seminary professor, D. Moody Smith, said, In John, the geographical location of Jesus' ministry is mainly in Judea and not in Galilee. Jesus travels to Jerusalem in John more frequently. His ministry takes place over a longer period, and there are fewer but more impressive miracle stories. Several stories are notably missing, too. There is no temptation of Jesus in the Gospel of John. The messianic confession of Peter, where Jesus asks him, Who do you say that I am? And Peter responds, You are the Christ. That story is not there. The agony of Gethsemane is not told. And for tonight, the institution of the Lord's Supper is not given. And the obvious question is, why? In its place is this story about Jesus washing the disciples' feet. Now, it seems that John is saying that being a servant carries more importance for him than instituting a new ritual for the church. I, I looked at several scholars for their insights into this unique story. And scholar F.F. F. Bruce says hospitality means to clean dusty feet. And if you are cleansed by Jesus' hands then you are symbolically taken into the event on the cross. It's a model of service for the disciples. One must be washed by Jesus to have a part in him. And scholar Raymond Brown says in the foot washing, Jesus humiliates himself, really, and takes on the form of a servant. It's an example of humility. But I like what Bishop Sally Dick of the Minnesota United Methodist Annual Conference said when she wrote an article recently about this chapter of John, saying this, that it's possible to take the foot washing functionally as Peter did, but it is more an act of relationship with Jesus and not a hygiene concern, dust Dirt and grime reminds us that we are sinners in need of grace, that grace that pardons and cleanses within, 
and foot washing was usually assigned to the lowliest servant or guests did it themselves after being offered the means to perform the task. And here Jesus offers another model of being in community, serving each other even in the most humble, common, and personal ways. Our intensified, heightened, and determined self-sufficiency keeps us from true community in Jesus Christ as modeled in Jesus' service to the disciples. So I think that through this story, John is saying to us that the life of Jesus can best be seen as a life of service, and we are commanded to do the same. Just as I have served you, so you are to serve others. The new covenant that in the other Gospels is instituted through the Lord's Supper can best be acted out, says the author of John, through a life of service to humanity. And when we stand up taking communion in just a moment, how do we walk from this place? Are we moved to remain in the past as we think about Jesus' upcoming death or serve in some way for someone in need? One of my first experiences with being in service was when I was in sixth grade. I decided that I wanted to run for president of my class. Now, I really can't say that I was being altruistic and wanted to be a servant leader, giving of myself to my classmates. I really just wanted to be the most popular kid in class. That's really it. I was up against Leslie Modenbach. Oh. Who I secretly had a crush on. And it actually would have been a lot better if I had been her vice president because I would have gotten to spend more time with her, for sure. But once I saw her posters on the wall, very neat and tidy, very good looking, I knew I was in trouble. I quickly decided I gotta do something. So I put together as slick a campaign as I could. I had a team of friends help me with my own posters. They were neat, but girls are always neater. There were flyers, but hers just looked better. So the result was, you guessed it, I lost in a landslide. And I learned from that experience that being of service to others takes a lot more than just wishing it so, than just good intentions. Somehow I hadn't learned the lesson that I would later learn that service to others is about somehow giving your life away. It's about offering yourself again and again without the expectation of getting anything back in return. It is one of the signs of a life lived in Christ. I liked being popular, but popularity, I would learn in time, was not so much a part of Jesus' new world. Popularity feeds my ego, and the way of Christ feeds a deeper place in our hearts. 
So getting our ego out of the way is essential, though very difficult. I was years away from truly hearing the words of our own John, John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, who devoted his life to helping others. His words about service are some of the best I've ever come across. Do all the good you can, by all the means you can, in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, at all the times you can, to all the people you can, as long as ever you can. Just hear the spiritual maturity of those words. I had a lot of learning to do. Do you know Megan McKenna? She is an internationally known author and teacher and storyteller within the Catholic faith. She is the author of more than 30 books and works with indigenous groups and justice and peace groups. But above all, she is a lover of words, both written down and told. Images and phrases spoken aloud and spun to bring meaning and hope to the world. And in one of her books, it's called Parable, she tells a wonderful story that I really like. It goes like this. Once upon a time, there was a blacksmith who worked hard at his trade, and the day came for him to die. The angel was sent to him, and much to the angel's surprise, he refused to go. He pleaded with the angel to make his case before God to say that he was the only blacksmith in the area and it was time for all of his neighbors to begin their planting and their growing. He was needed. So the angel pleaded his case before God. He said that the man didn't want to appear ungrateful and that he was glad to have a place in the kingdom, but could he put it off for just a little while? And... He was left. So about a year or two later, the angel came back again with the same message. The Lord was ready to share the fullness of the kingdom with him. Again, the man had reservations and said, A neighbor of mine is seriously ill, and it's time for the harvest. A number of us are trying to save his crops so that his family won't become destitute. Please, Come back later. And off the angel went again. Well, it got to be a pattern. Every time the angel came, the blacksmith had one excuse or another. The blacksmith would just shake his head and tell the angel where he was needed and decline. Finally, the blacksmith grew very old, weary, and tired. He decided that it was time for him to go. And so he prayed. God, if you'd like to send your angel again, I'd be glad to come home now. Immediately, the angel appeared. As if from around the corner of the bed, the blacksmith said, If you still want to take me home, I'm ready to live forever in the kingdom of heaven. And the angel laughed 
and looked at the blacksmith with great delight and surprise and said, Where do you think you've been all this time? He was home. He was home. When we are serving our Lord through charity and kindness, we are home. When we are serving our Lord through selfless expressions of love and care for others, we sit closer to God. A church that is focused inward, that exists only unto itself, is not a church of Jesus Christ. But a church that exists for the hurting world it serves is a church that most closely resembles who Jesus truly was. Have you seen the pictures of Jesus that show him with his arms stretched out, offering himself to whoever should come his way? Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Give yourself to others, and your needs will be met. In our text for tonight, Peter had a problem with Jesus offering himself this way. He was stuck in the functionality of the act. You shall never wash my feet, he said. You are my Lord. And Jesus says, if I do not wash your feet, you have no part in me. In other words, my way is the way that always yields to service. This is such an important evening for us. And I know that in just a moment we will meet our Lord at the table as we ponder this night when he was betrayed and began his final journey. As you do that, consider how you will go forward. This is the week that asks, what will change for you? Does the life of Jesus change anything for you this year? And to turn that around, does the death of Jesus change anything for you this year? Some of you know that I've been a part of a class this spring called Saving Jesus. We're trying to save him from the radical right and the radical left. I don't know if we've done that so far, but we've had a lot of fun uh, talking about it and, and meeting together. It brings many wonderful scholars together to deal with various issues of our faith, including the kingdom of God, Jesus' ministry uh, of compassion, uh, a recent class called Killing Jesus, the Atonement. And in our readings, John Shelby Spong, the retired Episcopalian bishop, spoke of Jesus' death on the cross in a way that was so insightful. He said this, I think there is deeper meaning for the cross that we ought to celebrate, and that is the symbol of life being voluntarily and freely given away out of love. The powerful story of Jesus on the cross, to me, is that he is dying and yet is portrayed as constantly reaching out to those who are in a different kind of pain. It is the way the church remembered him as a life so whole 
and so full and so free that even when he was dying, he was concerned to speak a word of forgiveness to the soldiers, a word of consolation to the penitent thief, a word of comfort to his grieving mother, a word of hope to the women who were weeping for him, a word of compassion for the crowds that were so distorted. Here is life dying, and yet he is so completely whole that he is giving his life away. That's the Jesus that we meet in tonight's scripture. A Jesus who loves wastefully, whose very being is to think first of giving away God's gift of love rather than hanging on to it. This is the Jesus who on his final evening with his disciples, according to John's tradition, takes a towel and water and goes around the table to wash his best friend's feet as their servant. If I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. There's a song that I have grown to love over the years that says this message better than any I know. It was written by Richard Gillard, and it's called The Servant Song. Brother, let me, brother, sister, let me serve you. Let me be as Christ to you. Pray that I may have the grace to let me be your servant too. We are pilgrims on a journey. We are brothers on this road. We are here to help each other walk the mile and bear the load. I will hold the Christ light for you in the nighttime of your fear. I will hold my hand out to you. Speak the peace you long to hear. I will weep when you are weeping. I, when you laugh, I'll laugh with you. I will share your joy and sorrow till we've seen this journey through. When we sing to God in heaven, we will find such harmony. Born of all we've known together, of Christ's love and agony. We are about to meet Christ at the table. The same table where he met his disciples that last evening to break bread and drink wine and to finish what he came to do. He was about to walk the final path to show us that love can take us down roads we don't want to walk. And we are walking with Jesus on the path that leads to execution. As followers, it is our participation with Jesus 
that we pass from the life of domination to the life of the servant. The Last Supper is about bread for the world, about God's justice against human injustice, about participation in the path that leads through death to life. So I'll finish with this story. It's a story of a teacher who tears to shreds a map of the world and thinking it an impossible task, gives that, those shredded pieces to a very stubbornly rebellious student to put together again. Within ten minutes, the boy is back, the task completed. Astounded, the teacher asks him how he did it. And the boy replied, When I turned the pieces over, I found a torn-up person. I put the person together, and when I looked at the other side, the world was whole again. Amen.